Hello and um, welcome to this episode of Better Off Red. My name is Pip Adam and um, yeah, this is episode 87 um, and it marks the start of something quite exciting for the year, this year-long project that I am attempting and so far is going extremely well, um, for me anyway, <laughs> what you'll think but um, so this year um, I've cut the year into four sections and in each one of those four seasons we're going to be talking about a particular element of craft so for these first three months we're going to be talking about setting Um, and setting is something that I've always had a varying degree I've always I've always had trouble sort of understanding it I've always had trouble um, working out how to write it um, and I've sort of always been searching for ways to talk about it um, that will kind of make sense to me so um, over the break over the break I sort of um, had some thinking time about this and have worked out an approach that helps me understand setting a little bit more Um, and I hope that that makes for some interesting um, podcasts for you to listen to so the way that I'm sort of thinking about it is um, less maybe less as a world building exercise and more as a way of thinking about space as well as place Um, so the space that something takes up on the page or in a book and also the space that um, you know characters move around in and the space that events happen in so um, yeah it's it's a slightly more fuzzy way of thinking about it but it's it's a way that I hope well it's helped me sort of get a grasp on on what it is to write place Um, so I hope that I hope that it's useful to you too. Um, either way, they're very interesting conversations. So um, yeah. Um, so this first conversation, um, I speak with Michaela um, Keeble, um, amazing writer, amazing thinker, um, amazing activist. Very grateful for everything that she does. Um, and in this conversation, we talk a lot about um, what it is to write the natural environment. Um, in the current climate crisis. Um, We also talk a little bit about the politics of writing place, especially um, as um, non-Indigenous people. Yeah, we we also, gosh, it's such a wide-ranging conversation. (laughs) We even talk about Shelley, something to look forward to. Um, So yeah, I hope you enjoy the conversation and that's a little bit about the thinking behind it. So yeah. one thing uh, Michaela mentions a book um, in the podcast that neither of us can remember the title of. It is Rebecca Solnit's book, Hope in the Dark, Untold Histories, Wild Possibilities. Um, the other thing is that this podcast was recorded um, during a time of scaffold building. Ugh. So um, there are some bangs and crashes and um, um, sort of noises throughout as um, a scaffolding is um, constructed around us, which seems Um, extremely meta and kind of quite beautiful for a conversation about space that they were literally building space around us which was really great Um, I also would love to thank um, Copyright Licensing New Zealand who have um, given us some money they've funded us um, uh, to make this podcast so we're very grateful I'm very grateful for that as well at the end of this podcast I'm going to offer an exercise um, sort of in response to the conversation uh 
the reason I'm doing this is not to add any pressure to anyone's lives. Um, but I just recently I've been listening to a lot of discussions with writers and have been trying to do just a little written response at the end of each one of them. Um, just it sort of seems to cement um, some of the stuff that I want to retain in my brain. So yeah, I'll offer that exercise at the end and um, obviously there's no pressure to do it. Um, yeah. So yeah, I hope you enjoy this conversation. How are you? I'm great, Pip. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it. It's quite a warm day and we've got some scaffolding going up as well. So I think there'll be some interesting noises going on. So um, the first thing I was wondering if you would be willing to do is um, could you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, so my name is Michaela Keeble. I am a white Australian woman uh, and I grew up in Nam, which is um, Victoria, um, on Kulin Nations country. And I came to New Zealand about mm, 12, 13 years ago to study writing. Um, but I had to get a job to support myself and ended up working in the community law movement um, over here, which I had been doing back home. And um, through a roundabout kind of series of accidents, I met um, my current life partner. <laughs> and, um, and now I live with him um, on his whānau land at Hongaweka Marae in Plymouthton. Oh, wow. That's yeah. so great. Um, and I was just thinking I'm sitting here with some of your um, writing as well, which is really beautiful. Like, it's really nice to have it here. It's really great. Now, um, in this series, I've asked people to bring in objects that we can talk about. Do you want to just describe the object that, or objects or group of objects or family of objects that you've brought in today? Sure. Well, um, I thought that uh, I would bring in a little group of juvenile power shells. Um, these come from the beach uh, where where we live at Hongweka. Um and I've brought them in for lots of reasons, which maybe we'll discuss a bit more. But uh, they're beautiful, and um, our abalone back home doesn't look like this. We don't have that incredible iridescent blue in our power shell, but also because um, they're kind of that quintessential Kiwiana thing. But I think um, that obscures. That Kiwiana-ness obscures so much more about what power are and also what um, dangers they face in our changing climate. Mm. And I also brought them in because they're very kind of, they're almost so um, common as to be mundane, but to me they speak a lot about the kind of territory that, um, that white writers in particular maybe need to be aware of when they're writing about place and people here on this whenua in Aotearoa. Yeah. Oh, thanks so much. It really is beautiful having them here and thank you for bringing them in. I, I, I always think what do objects think when they're moved around <laughs> must be quite interesting. Well, funnily enough, you know, I was raised to never remove anything from the beach. You know, you what's that thing about leaving only footprints? Yeah, yeah. But... Um, our kids are total collectors and they just drag home mountains of stuff from the beach. <laughs> and I've given up, I can't. So I just eventually pack it all up and take it back to the beach, the sticks and stones and shells and everything else. But sometimes when friends come over, they're like, you can't, you can't remove these things. 
but we have them all over the house. Yeah. yeah. And I was wondering, like, um, that sort of brings me to your book, which is called Intertidal, and there's something, you know, that's already speaking to these objects, you know, this idea of sort of the space, you know, that is sometimes full of water and sometimes, you know, distant of water. And um, I guess, like, sorry to get... Um, I'm probably going to get be a downer to start off with, but I <laughs> was just okay. thinking in Intertidal there's this really beautiful series of lines that go, um, and it's it's speaking about the ocean, I think it's, all my nightmares are intertidal, all my dreams intertidal, there, this is where the damage will be done. And I'm just thinking about, what do you think, in 2021, what do you think it is to write the ocean do you know what I mean like do um you know I I'm I'm unsure of how old you are but like in my lifetime you know the ocean really especially around the places that I grew up has gone from quite a beautiful safe place to a, a, a dangerous place and a damaged kind of place so you know this this book is a beautiful meditation on the ocean and the sea and nature but what what is it to write about those things in 2021 maybe i think for me um the ocean and and this book and and that intertidal zone i guess speaks not just to the to the physical place but also to the political or cultural territory that intertidal territory and you know here um you know the moana belongs to moana peoples that it, it uh, it's so it's something that I think white writers need to be uh, very aware of when we move into speaking about and thinking about and being in um, ocean places. So for me, when I think about the possibility for culture in the future, um, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about that's where my dreams are. You know, that's the the mixing and the mingling. Um, if it's done properly and um, but also where the real danger lies um, in terms of um, cultural degradation or cultural appropriation or just you know the immensity of harm that can be can be done when two cultures collide when one has much more power than the other mm. so that's kind of what I'm talking about yeah because I, I think that's where um, what I love so much about those lines in the work, um, you know, it's, it's a magnificent piece. It, it's like a beautiful, physical artefact, the book, and also, like, the ideas in it are so interesting because it, it does feel, yeah, like that beautiful space where there's a lot of dream and there's a lot of nightmare, there's sort of potential, you know, like, it's a, it's, it's a very, is that word potent related to potential? But, you yeah. know, like, it's a very potential kind of place, I don't yeah. know. I think that's so true and I think, you know, I work in climate change for my money (laughs) to bring the bread home um, in climate change, in communicating about climate change and a lot of people in that industry, you could call it an industry, um, talk about and suffer what they describe as climate anxiety and I am pretty wary of of that kind of, of falling into that space or state but at the same time, the time that, that when, I, when my anxiety is really triggered, it's when I think about the ocean and what is really happening in the ocean and um, what the change in the ocean is going to do to our 
our kaimwana and our pelagic fish and everything else. I, it's terrifying what's happening. And even, you know, just on the coast, marine heat waves and stuff make it feel quite bizarre to go for a swim. Mm. And it's kind of hard to imagine those places, um, particularly in the Pacific, where those changes are, you know, right on the doorstep, deeply urgent, terrifying. So, yeah, I do think it's... It, it is terrifying, it is the stuff of nightmares, but um, there's something, I suppose what I'm trying to do is channel that fear into something or kind of uh, change it or transform it into something more peaceful and more powerful that I can use to, to move forward and to talk about it with my kids and, and with others so that it's not something that is generating fear but something that's generating hope and action I guess because mm. I th fear can be quite um paralyzing eh? like I know that when I get frightened I sort of the action seems useless so I sort of stop taking the action I'm just like oh it's too frightening it's too big you know and yeah. I think that's what um is interesting about maybe like not that I want to make this massive claim for poetry or maybe I do, I don't know, maybe I do want to make a massive claim for poetry, but I'm just thinking like, um, I've seen you present in a more um, perhaps technical or, you know, like academic setting, and then to watch these similar ideas come out in a work, um, you know, that is more creative and imaginative, it's interesting, like, um, do you have thoughts about why at the end of the communicating in one area you're still happy to communicate in the other, if you know what I mean? Yeah. I think you're... I, I agree that there's such a big case for poetry. The problem is that um, not enough people <laughs> read poetry <laughs> or maybe our poems aren't good enough to capture the attention of, of lots of people. But whatever. Um, I think when I'm writing poetry, I can be my whole self. I can be an integrated person, a political person, an emotional person, spiritual, a physical object. But when you're, you know, doing communications work or journalism or whatever, you have to cut half of that away from you. And I think we need it, maybe. Uh, we probably need it. Mm. Mm. Um, I hope my bosses aren't listening. <laughs> uh, although I also think that what probably what we really need to do is to bring all of ourselves to bear on our on those kinds of roles. And it kind of shocks me how we can do the job and then close the door and walk away from such an important topic um, without I don't know without uh, compartmentalising ourselves. And I, I don't think. Probably in terms of the long-term future of humanity and the planet, if we want to get really high for Luton, that's not going to work. Mm. We probably have to start to be our whole selves in every area of life. Mm. Maybe? I don't know what I'm talking about. No, I really... <laughs> sorry, I do this as well sometimes. I'm like, I think that it's a nice way to experiment, though, through talk. You know, yeah. like, I think it's quite... You know, it's like... And I think um, the people I like talking to the most are the ones that um, are like, do I believe that? I, I, I just... <laughs> yeah. I just think it's a really good way to be. I think doubt is good. Mm. I don't know. Like, you know... And just speaking about kind of, like, that whole sort of experience, I'm just thinking... 
my first, the first time I encountered your poetry work was, um, I think you were reading actually one of the poems from here about wanting to sort of be in the ocean all day. And I was just, I always, um, I was amazed at how, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like evocative that poem is, you know, like, and then when I came to see it on the page, I was like, oh, it's quite spare, mm. you know. And I just wonder, um, you know, what is it to put a body into space mm. in poetry, if you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm only learning because it's only really recently that I've just started performing poetry and it's really amazing to me to feel the difference between a poem on the page and a performed poem. And um, I guess when I see it on the page, I, I can feel my own emotional life around it, but other people can't, and that's <laughs> fair enough. So it's exciting to, to, to perform and to bring those words, words to life, I guess. I think with this book I did try to... Um, to I tried to bring enough space around it and to, to make it very intentional for readers to understand where the pauses were and where the um, breaths were and to feel the tide coming in and out. But I've heard um, beautifully, you know, friends have, have given the book to their family members and taken videos of their family members reading it and sent them to me. And, and, and those... Um, family members aren't reading it the way I imagine they would read it, which I'm sure happens with every poem. Um, and it's strange to hear the poem be sped up and taken out of context, and you don't hear the ocean kind of swishing in and out. So uh, it's been a real um, it's been a real learning experience for me to understand how important spoken the spoken word is, I guess. Mm. Yeah. And it's like the thing that I find really interesting and in what you're saying and just going back to that memory of you reading it is that we were in one place. Like my memory is it was kind of a dark, crowded bar back in the days of dark, crowded <laughs> bars. And, and, you know, it was quite warm. And Oh, no, it was raining. Was I think. that at but, Meow? Yeah, yeah, I think it was at Meow. And like, but there's this weird thing where when you were reading, I was in two places at once, oh. you know, which I think is just so interesting. And that thing you're saying, like, when we're reading, we're reading about one place, but our body's in another place, if you know what I mean, which I think is so, I don't know, awesome. Oh, I just got shivers. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Oh, swimming, it's so good. Um, just as a bit of a segue, yeah. um, this book is published under the Anemone, um, did I say that right? Yes. I don't know. Anemone. Anemone. That sounds good. You know that when you say words <laughs> over and over, they don't sound right. So under that imprint, mm. do you, I really love the kaupapa behind, you know, because it's an idea for things that are perhaps, um, oh, do you want to talk about it? You talk about it rather than me talking about it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'd be keen to hear what you, what you think. But um, so Anemone, Anemone Press um, came to be because, first of all, with a group of friends, we started just hand-making books, and that was a couple of years ago, and just making one copy of a poem in a beautiful hand-bound way and then giving them away. And that was the first experience of, like, quote-unquote, publishing for me. Until then, I had been someone, and I still am someone, who experiences a lot of shame around being an artist, being a, being a poet. And it was a big deal for me to give a poem to to my partner or to my mum, my mother-in-law or to my um, parents or to whoever. And um, 
And when I gave them the poems, not only did the world not collapse, <laughs> they actually liked them, or well, they said they did. <laughs> so, and that was like, it's been a long, it's been a couple of years of experiencing the feeling of being um, out, I guess, as a writer. And so um, I really recommend that to people who feel that kind of real sense of shame around, oh, I'm crap and I can't write and what I write is really bad to just give your poem away, which I think is something Kurt Vonnegut says, actually. Just make something as well as you can and give it away. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so that we'd been doing that for quite a while. And then my friend Cassandra Barnett and I started thinking about how, in different ways, we both occupy quite liminal political spaces. Um, and that in poetry at the moment there's an urgency and a, a need I think to be to be to take quite strong political lines but in our deep personal lives neither of us um, is is really a political poet even though I consider myself to be an activist I'm really as a poet more of a kind of romance poet mm, <laughs> or yeah. love poet so we started thinking about what would it be to create a little um, you know collective that published work that didn't make any political claim at all and in fact did the opposite so and then to do it ourselves from beginning to end just and for me um while I love zines I also love um the book mm. as an as an object and I wanted to make something really beautiful um in the kind of traditional beauty sense of the word I guess uh so that's how that's how this book came about. And so the next book from Anemone Press will hopefully be Cass's own chapbook. Yay. Um, drum roll. <laughs> if you're listening, Cass. <laughs> no pressure. But all the pressure. <laughs> all the pressure. Um, but we also have plans for other, um, you know, collectively run and managed presses that don't have to kind of do what mainstream presses have to do with bottom lines and all of that stuff. Yeah. Because I think um, that it is an incredibly generous thing to do. Like, I mean, like I say, um, it, you know, like, you know, experiencing someone's work, really loving it, and then, um, I don't know, oh gosh, now I am a capitalist, but, you know, this idea of wanting to return to it and yeah. be with it, yeah. you know, there's something very generous about making it. And there's something, um, there's something about the shape of this book as well, which... Um, I imagine couldn't be done in, you know, like yeah. more, like it's definitely feels handmade and stuff. And, you know, um, and I'm just wondering about the space as far as that kind of space goes. Like there, there's space on the page, which I think is magnificent and um, it, it sort of sits in place in that way. But the, um, the last poem, the way that it sort of comes out, do you want to talk about it? It's sort of a concertina, right? Yeah. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Um, well, so what happens with the last poem, which is about the change underway in our ocean, is that if you the first line is the ocean faces us, he stands with his back to us. And then when you open that page, it's kind of the ocean turning um, their back to us. And, and then you just keep pulling and pulling and pulling and all you get is the same aquamarine colour. You'd have to kind of go into food court books or unity to, <laughs> to see to see it for yourself. But um, where it comes from is that, so I do science communication for mm. a job, but I'm not a scientist. And um, to be honest, science 
is not that interesting to me. <laughs> um, but sometimes I learn something that really, is, you know, blows my mind. And when I first started working in climate change, I learned that um, that the seas are not just rising because the ice is melting. They're also it's also expanding because of the heat that it's absorbing, which kind of blew my mind. So even if no ice was to melt, the sea would still continue to expand. And I just have always thought how phenomenal that is, how dynamic our systems are, our planet is, um, and how, how it's such a, such a vivid example of, of our planet trying to maintain balance, I guess. So I wanted to bring that to life in the concertina, to, to kind of exp explain visually what expansion is in terms of the ocean and it just does such a good job what I think is really interesting about the work like I when I went to university um I was very interested in capital R romantic writers you know in the western tradition you know like that kind of or you know and um just the, that relationship with place mm. like they would just go anywhere and <laughs> say this is my mountain kind of weird stuff like that what I really love is that um, when I think of Shelley or someone like that, I think of like the feet of Ozymandias and, you know, that's the intervention that man is making on the environment. But there's something about intertidal where there's, it's as big as Ozymandias' feet, but it's almost like we're dipping out, you know what I mean? It's, it's like that line you said about the, the ocean turning its back on us. I don't know. Like I'm so thrilled. Because Shelley's one of my favourite poets. Oh my God, really? <laughs> well, he was one of the first poets that I really loved. Mm. Um, and I haven't read him for years and years. So I have zero. <laughs> and I read him with no p politics, but just for the, for the feeling that he yeah. gave me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely, I, I, I love what you're saying. And I think it's kind of what I'm trying to do is the problem of, of white writing in general is... And it's something that's happening a lot in Australian writing at the moment, in First Nations writing, is kind of critiquing the way that white writers in Australia have a tendency to name and name and name and name and name and, and the role that naming plays in claiming um, things, inanimate things, non-human things, um, human things, cultural things. So in, in this book I've tried really hard to avoid naming anything but of course, poetry lives in the concrete, yeah. um, and uh, I think I don't know what I'll do in the future because you can only do that for so long. I think you can only fall away for so long. But um, I've really enjoyed the feeling it's given me of trying to um, be curious and describe my feelings and what I am um, observing without um, actively trying not to. Um, almost enter a relationship without consent, I guess. That yeah. question of consent is is quite a big deal for me. Because yeah. I think, you know, like, um, it is something that I've sort of become increasingly aware of in my own work, you know. Like, um, you know, I've always written books that are in a place, you know what I mean? And, like, um, often that place you know, I've experienced through white passing kind of, you know what I mean, like, you know, sort of that kind of way. And I think that what, yeah, these things that you're raising, I think, are really, I get quite excited by them because it means that there's a problem and I've now got to find a way of doing this in a way that I feel okay about, in a way that um, 
you know, is less damaging, less violent, those kind of things. And I think that, um, I don't know, like I could listen to you talk for hours and I love your writing on this, yeah. but I'm just wondering about this idea that we are on a land that is alive, that has spirit, that has, you know, um, and then we're in strange situations where we've put concrete over places and things like that. And I just wonder, you know, what sort of thoughts come to mind, like you've already spoken about the not naming, but when you are ready to approach writing that is centred in nature, you know, that is centred in place, um, I don't know, like, have you got any thoughts on that? I mean, anything you want to say about Mm -hmm. that? I guess when I um, think about place, I'm always aware that I'm probably trespassing or I'm almost 99% likely to be trespassing. And at the moment, there's only one tiny little square patch of, of whenua on which I'm not trespassing, and I'm there by explicit invitation. Um, yeah, so I think when I think about writing place, I always think about the people who um, are, are from that place first and try pretty hard to imagine the impact of a piece of writing on that um, reader before I um, start or before I publish, I guess. I think um, I'm really interested in the long-term question of how um, people who aren't Indigenous to a place can um, relate honourably, directly with place. Um, And I, I believe there are ways that we can do that and that we should do that for the future of, of humanity and the planet um, without also um, stepping on toes that we ourselves have, have done so much damage to. I think that we don't talk about it nearly enough and we need to talk about it much more. I think um, when I read lots of, of white writing here in New Zealand and also in Australia what I feel is the fear of white people to try and then when they do try or when we do try, we often make such terrible mistakes. But um, we have to try and we have to keep making those mistakes and keep talking about them, talking about them before we publish so that um, we don't, you know, don't do unintentional things. Um, And, yeah, I think finding ways to to re-enliven our spirituality without... Um, being painful, I guess, <laughs> is, is is something I'm really interested in. Yeah, that's something I'm learning more and more. You know, like I um, came from a family where conflict wasn't okay, and um, you know there were there was like immense things that were not talked about. And um, I think that this new way of being, where I'm kind of like, someone will call me up on something, and I'll say, okay. I made a mistake, thank you for letting me know, you know, and it's just, I don't know, like, it just, I just think again, it's that thing of doubt rather than being certain. Any time, I think the time when I'm most in trouble is where I'm thinking to myself, I feel totally um, entitled to do this, yeah. you know, like that's yeah. when I'm most in trouble, I yeah. think. Yeah, I, I, I really love everything you said. I think that was awesome. Um, This idea of, um, like, the spirit and the land and stuff like that, um, I, I feel like what I really love about your work is that there's this ability that 
Oh, th- this might be wrong. I might be reading it wrong. But this idea that science and spirituality don't have to... Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, we, we don't... I don't know. There's something really beautiful yeah. about that in the poetry that it, it lifts my spirit. But in the same way, there's also... You know, it, it doesn't feel like escapism, if you know what I mean. I don't know. I think you do that really well. Oh, thank you. Um, that's what I would... That's what I am trying to do. Um, I think... You know, I'm really influenced, or I'm influenced by. I love, you know, writers like Rumi and and what um, he does to me, and or what his translations do anyway. <laughs> how they um, turn the world and turn me in the world, and I think that it's hard to it, it's hard when you're, um, you know, I'm not a religious person, and my family um, are. Scientists. I come from a family of scientists and I tried to be religious and, um, you know, no one ever visited me. The spirits <laughs> never came. And it's kind of the question of my life. Like, where are my ancestors? Where are my ghosts? Th- that's a much bigger question. But um, I think what I'm trying to do in, in writing is to look for them and to listen for them uh, and to, um, yeah, just be humble. And all of those... Things I'm learning from from friends and family here. I've learned so much here, and um, I suppose I think we have, you know, non-indigenous people living in Aotearoa have so much to learn from um, Maturanga Māori. Uh, we just have to be really careful to learn and not to overtake. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you for that reminder. <laughs> I, I'm always happy to get that reminder. <laughs> Um, and I think, you know, this is what I think is interesting as well, is that, like, we talked before about concrete detail, like we talked about concrete things, and I think that um, often when we talk about setting, and I think this is something that's always made me a bit frightened about talking about it, is that there's also other kind of spaces that we make up when we write, you know, like these spaces of, you know, um, time condensing and, and people visiting in these liminal spaces and stuff like that, which I think is really interesting. Um, especially, I think, poetry has that way of doing it because of its slightly freer structure, maybe, or something like that. I don't know. And kind of um, going back to the power, like, there's something really beautiful about how those are... Um, oh, I'll probably say this the wrong way, but they are kind of remains of something you know what I mean like you know that they're they're beautiful and I loved that thing you said about how power has kind of been um sort of taken over as a New Zealand kind of thing Mm. but also you know it just sits in this wonderful yeah it's just it's magnificent yeah and I one thing I you know one thing that I am aware of that you know the scientists that I work with are very often unaware of is they might talk about the impact of ocean acidification on, on, uh, on Kaimwana, but I don't think they really, many of them, don't understand the kinship that people have with things like power. And uh, I don't know how they can learn because I, I, I spend lots of time with scientists having these kinds of conversations and... And I don't know how to create that turn, to get the world to turn for them or to, uh, to encourage them to turn in the world because their training is so entrenched. Um, but maybe, maybe if they came to a poetry reading that, that might do it, I don't know. Sometimes they do change um, or they, 
perhaps if they have a more spiritual or religious background, maybe that makes it easier. I don't know. But the question of how to encourage people with a very strong Western approach to life on Earth, um, how to encourage them to think more broadly, really, really, not just the pretend, yes, yes, it's all very important, yes, yes, to really get people to, to feel differently. I don't know how to do it. It's something I... I kind of bang my head against that brick door of, of Western science and think, I, I don't know, will you change? I know that Māori scientists are like, ah, you're never going to change. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, because I think that's what I was thinking like when you were talking before. Like I was thinking about, um, like, we, like in this, I've constantly been thinking about how we create a... Um, you know, we, we live in one world and try to do like not replicate but we try to have some kind of relationship with that world in our writing but I was just thinking how in reading Intertitle I was out at um, Pakakariki yesterday and like I was like whoa the things that I read in there changes the world out here as well which I think is I do think I do think there is some kind of um, opening up that happens when I read or when I listen to music or when I look at art there's some kind of it's able to almost mainline into a place which is often cut off with logic you know like if someone talks to me I'm kind of like oh yeah yeah I get it I get it because I'm I'm, they're asking me to get it yeah whereas like when I read something it's kind of like something mushy happens I don't know something not mushy but something changes or something transformative eh and that's such an addiction. Like, I'm addicted to that transformative feeling. Me too. <laughs> and I've been addicted to it since I was little. And I don't... I, it's, it's what drives you forward, eh? It's what drives you to keep learning, to keep unlearning, to keep realising that you've been wrong your whole life again and again and again yeah. and again. <laughs> and at the same time, it's also helping me understand um, what I what I can stand up for and what, or what I can stand for, mm. what I do mm. stand for. Because mm. um. I think that is really interesting, that transformation. I do feel like that is... And even when you look at your work on the page, through the line break there's a transformation because often a sentence is cut in half and um, you know it looks like it's going one way and then there's another line underneath it that takes it in a different direction. And again, the image is transformed and it sits there in the metaphor in this weird way that, yeah, I just think, I think there is something about the way your work in particular and other work that I love can kind of break down those concrete things that actually is quite useful to me. I did, I tried quite hard. I think, I don't know, you could, I definitely would do it differently again, but um, I was thinking a lot about change and like change over, over millennia and, um, and what we're giving birth to and who's giving birth to what <laughs> and um, thinking, I, I suppose I was trying to write you know, about the fact that we really don't know anything and that um, Mother Nature has it in hand. It doesn't, it, that fills me with excitement, that the, this, the, the need to understand what she is up to in order that we can follow her mm, mm. feels really crucial to me. Mm. Because yeah. that's that other image that was for me in that thing of the ocean turning the back 
that's you follow people you know what I mean like it's yeah. you know that wonderful thing that at first I was like oh and and sad but then I thought also like if if someone is going to lead me somewhere generally that I will see their back you know and I will follow their back and I thought that's an amazing sort of difference because I think that is something that I think those capital R romantics there was always this desire to sort of tame you know when you think of the um you know sailing on the ships and climbing the mountains and you know like and there's something now that nature is perhaps having their way with us a little bit you know um because I do have this sense which is probably not very scientific and I'm careful whenever I say it but I do have a sense that once we're gone things will be okay you know like I mean I don't I don't know I hope we're not going to destroy the planet I hope we destroy ourselves before we destroy the planet and that kind of makes me quite hopeful as well that you know there's this thing that and that's often what I see when I look you know that idea of um geological time and geographical you know like that you know like um like even when we were up in Taranaki you know like seeing the sand and thinking oh this started bigger than sand and I don't know I I get quite excited about it I I think when I this is a conversation I've had lots of times as well like are we is is the end goal of of Papatuanuku well not the end goal but is the logical um consequence of our behavior that we um annihilate ourselves and I think I, do, I think we have to be really careful to, that we don't treat all humanity as the same mm, so true <laughs> and that the the wisdom the knowledge that's already been lost <clears throat> through colonization and whatever else um, deforestation all of the things climate change it's it is devastating to think about what will be lost, <clears throat> the knowledge that will be lost. I don't, I don't particularly feel hopeful that we'll get rid of ourselves and that that will be great. <laughs> I feel hopeful that we might um, stop and learn a bit from people who've been around for a lot longer than us or from our own cultures before um, capitalism or, or Christianity took hold um, or a particular form of Christianity. Yeah, I'm excited to, um, you know, maybe I'm a, a hippie, <laughs> which scares me. <laughs> but um, I do, I'm excited to consider different ways of being in the world. Without, I, I don't particularly want to opt out from society either. And well, I love the idea of living off grid, but I also think particularly people like me have a responsibility to not do that and to kind of be a bit more active. But... Yeah, I just when you read First Nations writers, there's so much um, work being done to reclaim um, culture that it just seems a bit intense to say, oh, well, it'll all, we'll all be gone one day, so it doesn't matter. I think it does matter. Yeah, you've changed my mind completely. <laughs> I just, and I think that is that thing that I just realise how freaking white centred my thinking is. Because, like, when I think of people going it's you know what I mean it's it's the deserving ones that will go and like it's like that's not you know what I mean it's it's so true what you're saying like I mean and oh it just fills me with so much hope and I think that that and again you know going back to right at the beginning when we're talking about it me hopeful is probably a little bit more useful than me discouraged I think I don't know yeah 
Yeah, and I, and are you have you read Rebecca Solnit talking about hope? No. Oh, it's <gasps> really great. Oh my gosh, I will go and find that. I love her writing so I much. I do too. And yeah. um, that the book I can't remember what it's called. Living in no, I don't know. Something to do with hope, anyway. Holding on to hope, or talking about the kind of difference between living in a state of hope and living in a state of despair and cynicism, and uh, how to hold, how to kind of cultivate. A, a vibe of hope, even when we know it's fairly likely that the ones to survive the immediate climate crisis are the ones who are, gonna, who are the rich and the ones with all the assets. But despite that, we can also orient ourselves to a different um, path forward. Mm. Oh my God, I love that. Oh gosh, it's always so great to talk to you. <laughs> I, feel, I feel bitter already. It's just wild. Because I was, I mean, it also, it also reminds me of all, um, you know, like I listen to a lot of science fiction writers and, you know, there's a, there's a big um, discussion in a lot of those communities around how easy it is to write dystopic writing because you just remove everything. You know, like it's real easy. You just obliterate everything. Whereas if you want to write utopic writing, you actually need to create something and you need to offer a a different way forward. And, you know, like that's a lot harder. I mean, I I don't know if there is a genre of utopic fiction, is there? Um, I think there are. There are a few writers at the moment which I think would be frightened to call themselves utopic but I really I really think they're kind of shifting into that way of thinking which is really exciting for me. I love that because I think you know Angela Davis says it too you can't you how can you walk towards a future that you don't you can't see and but I I don't know if we have to do it in in the future either like we have Mm -hmm. there are moments of utopia here in our present lives without kind of romanticising our lives. I think there are some really exciting things happening in the present and that we could amplify into utopia or or however. I'm excited to see that kind of stuff. That's what I'd like to be reading. Mm, mm. I totally agree. And I think this might be why I... Because I definitely... There's something about that captured moment in the ocean and intertidal that, um, like you say, like it gave me a sense of energy. I was like oh yeah, you know, there are these moments and like maybe, you know, like maybe that's where my energy could go rather than my energy just, you know, because I'm I'm someone who just gets angry a lot and, you know, knows what everyone else should do and... and (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine it. But uh, yeah, and like I was just that moment in the ocean because I read it again this morning and I was just thinking, yeah, like that... That stillness before I move might be better than this, you know, like um, image management that I do where I'm like, oh, I am, you know, perfectly woke and I will move in the right direction. But this moment of sort of like just touching base, that might be a way smarter way to go. I'm there for that. Yeah. And I think, you know, like, you know, we all have contradictions. Everybody, every single one of us without fail has contradiction and hope and change lives in the contradiction. I think it's a challenge for every single one of us as writers to be a bit more honest about our contradictions and to write into them, even though it's contradiction that can also do damage to our families and our, um, you know, our friends as well. But I think that's, it's that truth that can help us see, see ourselves, see each other and imagine, oh, oh yeah, this could be different. Yeah. Oh my God. 
that seems like the perfect place to end cool. oh my gosh <laughs> thank you so much i oh, really appreciate it it's so lovely talking to you and thank you so much for your beautiful book and um yeah i just really appreciate it thank you so much thank you pip thanks for listening to the podcast um so by way of some kind of response writing and a bit of a prompt for that response um Michaela and I talk a lot about resisting naming and the politics of naming and I thought that could be an interesting response um, exercise. Um, I just wonder, you, you might like to write about a place that you know well without using any proper nouns. Um, so when I tried this, I noticed that my relationship to the place changed in a useful way and also um, that restriction was very useful for um, writing, like things that I think I held as connotations of the name um, or in the spirit of the name, I then had to sort of explain in the features of the place, which I think was very useful and um, sort of like the spirit of the place and the feeling that I get from the place. So yeah. Um, there you go. You might like to write about a place without using any proper nouns. Thank you so much and um, have a good day. Mm-hmm.